Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and you guessed it, whoever. Uh, Originally, I was going to do a kind of structured news story episode, but I kind of have a lot on my mind, so I figured I'd just do one of my rambling, unscripted episodes. If you prefer that kind of content, I guess it's your lucky day. If not, I sincerely apologize. I can't believe Halloween's almost here. I like to do a kind of spooky, scripted, mini-documentary episode every year, so I'm gonna try to still get one out. So if you prefer the scripted content, hopefully I'll have something out for Halloween. And that reminds me, I still have to re-release the initial, the first ever Weekend Out Halloween episode I ever did. I like to kind of, you know, release that as a T-Wid replay. T-WID, that sounds weird. T-W-I-D. The Weekend Out. (laughs) Okay. And before I forget, I just found out either today or yesterday that James Randi passed. So very sad news if you're a fellow skeptic like myself. He was 92 years old, so at least a good long life. And he passed away on the 20th. And so most of you probably don't need me to explain who James Randi was, but just in case, a legendary stage magician and famous for, you know, exposing or busting charlatans and frauds like Peter Popoff and Yuri Geller. And what I loved about him is uh, something I love about Penn and Teller also, is just the intellectual honesty, you know what I mean? Uh, These are people who are, you know, stage magicians, illusionists, or conjurers, and yet they admit, you know, nothing spooky going on here. It's just, you know, it's clever tricks, it's smoke and mirrors, and James Randi, like Penn & Teller, used his knowledge of stage magic and illusion to promote science and reason and critical thinking and to shine a light on BS. And so even though I'm usually loath to use the word community for lack of putting it otherwise, he was a great asset to the skeptic community and a great champion of of reason. So uh, he will be sorely missed. Um, But like I said, a good long life, uh, 92 years old. And since I'm drinking here, and I'm still avoiding drinks with high fructose corn syrup, so I'm drinking rum mixed with... uh, (laughs) You know, cream soda. Cream soda made with uh, cane sugar. So I'll have a drink to uh, James Randi. Ah, yeah. There we go. And I have to admit I'm in a better mood now, but earlier I was thinking about venting about uh, road rage or interactions with other drivers or whatever. Uh, Yeah, it's very strange. On the last uh, Patreon bonus episode, so I guess I am going to still vent about it, but on the uh, last Patreon bonus episode, I talked about a negative interaction I had with someone in a parking lot on my birthday, uh, October 8th. And then I recently had another interaction. But anyway, uh, regarding the one on my birthday, And I also mentioned, you know, self-deprecatingly, is that an actual word? Okay. On the bonus episode, 
Now, I think it's a combination of things. I mentioned how when I was a little kid, usually everyone struggles with some sound or another, you know, when you're learning to speak or whatever when you're a little kid. For me, it was the TH sound, like as in the, but I was joking, you know, how I eventually mastered it, but then it's the, uh, the impediment seems to be coming back. I think it's a combination of, um, I, I went through all this on the bonus show, how... My, my dentist thought that my bite may have been like damaging my teeth. So they recommended clear aligners. They wanted me to use Invisalign through them and it would have been like 4,000 bucks. So for less than half of that, I went with uh, a company called Smile Direct Club. Usually wouldn't cut corners, especially something uh, as important as your teeth, but they seem to have pretty good reviews. So, you know, and I'm almost done with the treatment. I, I actually, I might have like one more month to go, I think. But anyway, yeah, so I'm been, I've been wearing clear aligners and they, I mean, this is how it works. You put in uh, a series of aligners, most of them you wear for like a week or two weeks at a time, and they basically force your teeth into a new position until you get to the end result. So my teeth, the position of my teeth is changing. I'm wearing aligners. Uh, the medicine, amitriptyline, that I take for my migraines tends to dry your mouth out and can also kind of uh, affect uh, your speech and, you know, muscle coordination. So <laughs> a bunch of things. So my voice might sound a little funnier than usual, but hey, what are you going to do? So anyway, I usually don't make a big deal out of my birthday. I still go to work and all that. If I get a couple of gift cards, I'm fine. Um, yeah, so I went to work and we've been wrapping up a kitchen job. And my, uh, my brother needed me to go to this cabinet place that uh, the family business has used for years to retrieve a piece of uh, scribe molding. We needed one more piece of molding. And uh, so I hop in my car, you know, I go there. And uh, I mentioned briefly on the uh, Patreon bonus show how when I was younger, you know, like back in my early 20s, I still had a good deal of social anxiety. And when my father would send me off on like an errand or a mission for work, even if it was something really trivial like getting coffee, I used to like not get upset you know, probably visually that someone could see I was upset, but I would be kind of like bummed out and conflicted and be stressed out because going on one of these errands, you know, if I had to go get coffee, it meant I had to stand in line with other human beings and then actually go to the counter and talk to another human being. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was kind of stressful. But nowadays, I actually love being sent on, you know, errands. It's kind of like, uh, you, you know, you have more autonomy. You can be alone in your car with music or a podcast. And I just really enjoy getting away from the job site. So I'm on my way to go pick up the molding. And uh, yeah, a couple of things happened. I, I was on a main road and I had the right of way. And all of a sudden, someone just sped out without stopping from a side street. And I had to slam on my brakes, the brakes I just got fixed. And to be honest, I don't really get pissed off if someone cuts me off. I don't take it personally. I mean, I think it's bad. I think it's dangerous and they should do it. But I don't take it uh, personally. So I slam on my brakes. I get that adrenaline rush, you know, because I almost had a feeling. I'm like, okay. 
Here we go. You know, your perception of time seems to slow down, kind of like Max Payne bullet time. And you're like, oh, you just feel yourself kind of skidding towards the car and, and you're bracing yourself for an accident. But I was able to stop in time, you know, and uh, they just kept going. So I had that adrenaline rush. I'm like, okay, that woke me up, you know, uh, but no harm, no foul. So I continue on my way to the cabinet place. And so I pull into the entrance and um, it's like a gigantic parking lot because it's kind of like a strip mall. There's a bunch of businesses there and it's kind of divided. You know, the parking lot is divided in the center by a series of kind of landscaped islands or whatever. So to my left, there's a work truck blocking me. Um, and to the right, there's a series of, you know, orange road cones or whatever, road work cones. But there's enough space between the cones and the middle where you can fit through with your car. And it looked like a couple of the cones were already knocked over or something. So I fit, you know, I work my way through. I fit through the space, the opening and the cones. And I drive to the other side of the parking lot. I'm in front of the cabinet place that I have to go into. And I'm just kind of, you know, getting my stuff together, you know, getting ready to grab my mask from the passenger side, uh, making sure I have my wallet, all that kind of thing. And uh, I see this guy kind of looking at my car and walking like slowly past my car. And I don't think too much of it because I figure he's a customer or maybe works at one of the uh, businesses. Kind of like a middle-aged guy. He could have been in his middle 50s or even into his early or mid-60s. And seeing as there's a part of me that I think is still mad or resentful of the guy, I don't mind uh, making fun of his appearance. Had kind of like a decent pot belly going, but he's wearing like this gaudy kind of printed dress shirt tucked into his pants, and he's wearing like a, a leather blazer or something. And, uh, yeah, so I see him walking slowly around my car. He seems to almost be inspecting my car. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, some people are just kind of curious or nosy by nature. And when they're walking past things, they kind of look or whatever, you know. And uh, all of a sudden the guy comes around to the side of my car and he's knocking on my, my window. So it, I'll give him this. At least he was wearing uh, a mask, you know. And so I'm kind of thinking hmm, what the hell is this? I'm like, maybe he's going to ask for directions or something. At the time, I was blaring the new Marilyn Manson album, so I kind of turned it down. And I was joking on the Patreon bonus show how before that I had been listening to Tubular Bells. I've actually been listening to Tubular, Tubular Bells a lot recently. It's just great driving music, especially in the fall. And uh, you guys know me and The Exorcist. In case you're not familiar, that's the... Uh, the, the theme to The Exorcist. And um, I was joking how it would have been great if I'd still been lis listening to Tubular Bells. I just rolled down the window and looked at the guy. Imagine going up to a car and uh, when the person rolls the window down, you just hear the uh, theme to The Exorcist. And so I rolled down the window and being my polite self, I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And he's he had like a thick, like a Spanish accent, but looked like a white guy. And so I don't know if he was like Spanish Spanish as in from Spain or Argentina, whatever it was. I, I don't know. And he starts laying into me how I have to find somewhere else to park. Uh, I can't be parked. He is kind of like a, you know, kind of an aggro vibe to him. 
So I'm kind of putting two and two together. I'm like, all right, there was the cones that, you know, I was able to drive through. And, and I guess, I don't know what kind of work they were doing, but I could see they were using like a pneumatic tool to like blow air in the cracks of the pavement. So either landscape guys or they were cleaning out the cracks in the asphalt so they could then reseal them or whatever, you know. But the side of the parking lot I was on, like huge open parking lot, there, there were other cars parked there, probably employees to, you know, who work at some of those businesses or whatever. And his guys were still on the other side of the parking lot. So, you know, they hadn't even made it anywhere near where I was. And I was only going to be in there a couple of minutes. I usually go out of my way to be polite, but I was kind of, I had a little bit of edge to me. I'm like, I'm expected in this building here. I'm here on business. I'm supposed to be picking up a piece of molding. And that he's like, that's okay, but you can't be parked here. I'm like, where do you want me to park? Uh, I don't know. Somewhere over there. And then he kind of walks away and he's like, um, all right. You know, and that's in retrospect, I kind of like that about the guy. There was something about the way he said, all right, with his back towards me and a little hand gesture. It, like, it, it seemed, um, I don't know. It almost reminded me of something like my father or grandfather might do, you know, where someone considers something resolved and they're like, okay, as they're walking around, you know, like he didn't bear me any ill will, but the rest of the interaction, he was kind of negative and aggro. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm, so he walks away. I'm like, okay, so I guess he doesn't want me to go through the area w where I came in again. You know what I mean? And I'm like, the only way I can get to the other side of the parking lot now is I think it's his truck. There's this big, white, shiny work truck, a pickup truck. And there's just enough room to drive behind it. I'll have to put one wheel up on an island and make it over. And so I, I do that. And now I'm wondering if this guy, you know, is seeing me do this. And now he's going to get pissed because of that. But I make it. Th so I'm literally like probably only like six feet or something, um, you know, from where I was before. I'm basically still in front of the same store. I'm just on the other side of his truck. And I'm usually... Uh, I hate the term Karen. I hate any kind of like catchy new lingo. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, um, I'm usually not a Karen. What's a male Karen? A Ken? You know, I don't do public meltdowns or anything like that. But I was kind of like fuming. So I get out of my car and I'm looking right at the guy. And he looks like he's just, he must be the guy running the crew. I have a Peter Brady break. He must, he must be the guy, been the guy running the crew or the boss or whatever. And it seems like he's keeping himself busy by shuffling cones around or whatever. And I like look over at him. And I like slam my door as hard as I can. And like he and some other people turn around. But he looks a little sheepish now. And you know, he kind of like looks but then turns back away. And I'm thinking to myself like I'm going to go into the store. And, and nicely you know still being me. But I'm going to complain. I'm going to say hmm. Do you guys know who that guy is working out there? He's kind of rude you know. And I'm a customer. But that's not really me. So when I get into the store I'm all kind of like smiley. And uh my usual self, you know what I mean? And uh, so I'm kind of exchanging pleasantries with the person in there. I'm saying why I'm there. And the woman who brings out the piece of molding is also the woman who designed the kitchen. So she's asking me questions about the job. And I'm being trying to be as nice as possible, have a little smile on my face. Well, inside, like my adrenaline's going. And I'm already thinking how I'd like to go like 
chimp on this guy, you know, just full ape, and like, you know, drag him around the uh, parking lot while screaming like a chimp and thrashing him with my arms and wrists. Uh, but, uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, so I get back in my car, and this time, you know, I make it back out or whatever. And it's so stupid, and I know better, but I was, like, ruminating on that for days. And then it was suddenly, like, I saw how just silly and absurd it was to let that, you know, eat at me. And then on the 20th, I had to take my new dog to get spayed. It's kind of an all-day affair. I dropped her off at, like, 8 in the morning. And then my brother let me out of work a little early, around 3 p.m. or a little after. And so I'm leaving work to go get her. And I'm kind of getting ready to exit a side street and turn onto the main road. And so, you know, I'm stopped at the, uh, at the intersection. And I can see, like, traffic's just nonstop coming in from the left lane. And so it seems like 10 or 20 cars go by. No one's letting me, you know, pull out. And so finally I see a break. So I start to pull into the intersection. But I see now that I have to let one or two cars coming the other way, you know, go by before I can safely finish my turn. And I know it's kind of, that can be frustrating or annoying. I've been on the other end of that where you're trying to go straight on a main road and all of a sudden someone pulls halfway out and you have to wait for them, you know, to, uh, you have to wait for traffic to clear on the, on the other side so they can finish pulling out or taking a turn. And so a couple of cars go by. I take my turn. I happen to have my window down and all of a sudden, this guy yells at me, like this really angry, bellowing voice. He's like, move! And so it's one of those things, you know, these interactions while driving, or even like the one I had with that other guy, they're so unexpected and they happen so quickly. But by So by the time you're done processing it, the uh, moment is already over. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can always think of things we could have said better or ways we could have owned the other person or put them in their place, you know, but you can't, you know, the moment's gone. And speaking of that, I was kind of doing that with the other guy, you know, after the fact, I'm thinking like if I could rewind and, you know, do it again, I would have said, you know, listen, I wanted to turn left. Your guys were blocking the parking lot entrance there. And I saw to my right that there was an opening between the cones. If your guy, I don't know if your guys moved the cones so people could get by, or if someone before me just plowed through the cones, but there's room to get through. And here I am, you know what I mean? But of course, you can't press rewind. It's done, it's over. And I remember, like I said, I looked at the guy and slammed my car door. And there's part of me, I'm like, I'm gonna go over to this guy and try to like straighten him out. And be like, you know, why are you trying to tear into me when, you know, I had to make a split second decision and I made one and there was an opening, you know, between the cones or whatever. Who cares, you know, but then I'm like, I'm going to look like the bad guy after the fact. If, if the thing is over and done and all of a sudden I walk over in a heated way and escalate things, I'm going to look like the out of control psycho who can't control his temper or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, but so this guy who yelled, and once again, like in retrospect, this seems so silly. You know, people yell in traffic and flip each other off all the time. And in a way, you know, he looked like he, if anything, I mean, yeah, 
maybe what I did was a little annoying or frustrating. Maybe I could have waited, you know, significantly longer and waited till both sides of the road were completely clear so I could turn out without obstructing anyone, you know, or holding anyone up. But, you know, I did what I had to do. I was waiting at that intersection a long time. I was trying to do what I could, you know, take advantage of an opening. And the fact that, you know, he's yelling. Because if, if the roles were reversed, and like I said, I have been in that position plenty of times. Like, at the, at the core of my being, part of my core philosophy, maybe it's because I'm a sensitive person myself, I make a point never to blow my top and yell at people for stupid stuff. I never yell at people for accidents. I try to be very mindful of people's feelings. And so in a way, even though other people might kind of sympathize with him, you know, um, and they have a, a, maybe they have a low tolerance for annoying drivers or overly cautious drivers. I think, you know, you could make a pretty good argument that he was the jerk. He was the guy I had trouble controlling his temper. He was the one yelling at someone he doesn't even know in traffic. What? Because, you know, they're just trying to go about their business and work their way, you know, out to the intersection. But yeah, even though it's very unhealthy, doesn't make any sense, and it's an exercise in masochism, I found myself ruminating on that. I'm like, oh, and I went to like some dark places, and this kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, my band. Um, when we were really more active when we were younger and we were, you know, still writing songs regularly and playing clubs or whatever, um, wow, a lot of my lyrics were really, really dark and some of them were kind of like fueled or inspired by the kind of, you know, the inner anger, like the, the dark rage I would feel in the wake of something like that if I felt like I let someone get away with, uh, um, you know, like insulting or belittling me or something like that. Yeah, kind of like that. That's one of our old songs. Uh, yeah, me uh, doing the vocals and uh, the lyrics, uh, my lyrics. Uh, yeah, dark stuff. Yeah, but like I was saying, it's so unhealthy to just you know negatively dwell or ruminate on stuff like that. Because, I mean, what the hell are you going to do about it? Um, but like I said, by the time you're done processing something like that, you know, the moment's already passed. He's, you know further down the road his way, I'm further down the road my way. What are you going to do? Like turn around like a psycho and hunt the guy down or something? I mean, imagine explaining that to the cops. Oh yeah, so um, I parked my car in traffic and uh, I took a, you know, a claw hammer out of my car and walked over towards the other guy. You know, you're going to look like a psycho monster and you're probably going to spend like a night in jail. And uh Hopefully you guys know me well enough that, you know, I'm not some explosive monster. I'm actually a really sensitive human being. Uh, it's probably because I'm so sensitive that, you know, 
negative interactions and slights like that. You know, I take them more personally than I should. I might fantasize about doing crazy stuff, but I'm, I'm not some road, you know, road raging maniac. And the reason why I brought up road rage earlier, it was more because I think that's more fitting of that guy than it is me. You know what I mean? Instead of just, you know, exhibiting patience and restraint, you know, and letting someone just go about their way, the guy has to, uh, you know, yell out the window at another human being like some uncouth beast or something. And I think, you know, when you boil it down, I think pride and ego have something to do with it. Not that I'm some overly proud person or, or something like that, but... You know, like I was saying, if someone cuts, although other people will really, they'll kind of flip if they get cut off. They take that personally. But like I was saying, if someone cuts me off or if someone's driving too slowly in front of me, I don't feel like that's personal. I feel more like the person is just trying to navigate their way or maybe recklessly and dangerously in the, in the case of someone swerving in and out of traffic or cutting people off. But I don't really take it personally. But when someone like eyes you, and they flip you off or they yell something at you, then it feels more personal. You know, it's aimed specifically at you. But, you know, you can't control the way other people act. If you're going to let your inner peace be disturbed or let your day be ruined every time someone out in the world is a bit disrespectful, you know, then you're probably in for a lot of misery or emotional distress, you know what I mean? And it's one of those things like, you know that's the case, but you have to try to condition yourself to really know it, you know what I mean? Um, and that's why I've been trying to, uh, you know, drag out my old cognitive, uh, my CBT notebook, you know what I mean? And do the little cognitive behavioral exercises and even do a little journaling. It's funny uh, I've been watching a lot of Joe Rogan over the past couple of days because he's had a lot of interesting guests on. And just uh, earlier tonight before I sat down to record, I finished watching an interview he did with Matthew uh, McConaughey. And Matthew McConaughey was talking about how he's been journaling for over 30 years. And I've actually been keeping journals since I was like in my late teens, early 20s. And for me, and I think he actually said something similar, this was part of the reason for him as well, is that I was inspired by authors uh, like Jack Kerouac, who said they kept journals so uh, they could draw from those for their, uh, for their writing. You know, most of uh, Jack Kerouac's works were autobiographical, but, you know, um, they were somewhat embellished or changed or uh, dramatized or whatever. And uh, he would change the names for the sake of privacy and things like that. But yeah, I used to love Jack Kerouac so much that I wanted to, at some point, write my own autobiographical like stories or novels and be able to access old uh, memories and events by, you know, having these old journals on hand. And I found out that they were also very therapeutic you know, therapeutic. There's something about writing your thought, putting your thoughts and feelings down on paper that really helps to kind of crystallize things and helps you to get things out of your system. Uh, it can be very cathartic. And it's funny, like I mentioned on the show a few times, 
even though I didn't have the vocabulary, I didn't know what those things were. I think if you even go way back into my childhood, I uh, was probably suffering from things like bouts of depression, anxiety, a tendency to, you know, obsessively focus on negative thoughts or events, you know, replay things, ne negative events in my head, uh, worry about things obsessively. And as I've also mentioned on the show, you know, when I was prescri first prescribed antidepressants for my migraines, you know, I had this kind of come to Jesus moment, figuratively speaking, of course, that uh, I, I kind of was compelled to admit to myself that there were other things besides migraines going on, you know, issues and baggage that needed to be addressed. And I did notice the antidepressants have other positive uh, benefits other than, you know, numbing the pain of the migraines or whatever. Um, I did notice, and, and this is known about SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that they do tend to help clear up kind of obsessive, you know, worrying or, you know, these kind of ruminations or whatever. Um, so I'm almost wondering if maybe, you know, <laughs> I might be better off uh, eventually going back on some kind of uh, SSRI because um, amitriptyline, as far as, you know, being an antidepressant, it's an old school antidepressant. I don't think it's prescribed that all that often anymore strictly for depression, there's better alternatives. Although some people do continue, you know, it is given to certain people for expressly for depression. Um, it's great for migraines, but yeah, there's a lot of kind of like, it, ironically, you know, I haven't experienced any sexual side effects on amitriptyline, you know, that you do tend to get on the SSRIs, but there's other bothersome side effects, like I was mentioning at the, the uh, top of the show, the dry mouth, even like dry eyes. And I wear contacts, so I've been having trouble wearing contacts because of that. Uh, slurred speech, you know, brain fog, stuff like that. Uh, but we'll see what happens. So I think it might not, the amitriptyline is keeping my migraines under control, but might not be doing too much for me as far as like depression and, you know, negative thoughts and stuff like that uh, go. And I guess I should unapologetically announce that I guess it's official. This is now one of those therapy episodes <laughs> where instead of like covering news stories or whatever, I, I kind of use the show as my kind of uh, my psychiatric couch or whatever. I think I'm definitely feeling the rum. Anyway, so uh, it's funny. Yesterday, I actually watched a movie starring Russell Crowe that's about road rage. <laughs> And it's funny because usually I'm into horror movies or fantasy movies, comic book hero movies, stuff like that, uh, sci-fi. And so when I first saw that it was a movie about road rage, you know, usually I might find that kind of not necessarily a compelling idea or a subject for a movie. Uh, maybe I'd assume it might be kind of, you know, boring or whatever. But <laughs> given the things I was ruminating about, it, it seemed uh, strangely apt. I'm like, hmm, oh, okay, I'll watch this. And it's actually not a bad movie. And in some ways, it might actually kind of, you know, be a crossover movie. I think it could be considered a kind of, you know, a suspense uh, thriller or something like that. But also, um, it, it gets pretty graphic at times with the violence. So it could almost be considered a horror movie, too. And yeah, so it stars Russell Crowe, and he's the, and I'm 
it's me and spoilers, geez. But, uh, you know, here we go. But he's the antagonist. Uh, and the name of the movie is Unhinged, appropriately enough. And, uh, yeah, man, his, uh, I'm not trying to body shame the guy, but, man, I, I knew for, like, years now people have been... You know, talking about how Russell Crowe has kind of gained weight. Uh, but I looked it up, and I think they said he's up to like 270-something pounds now. But he looks pretty darn heavy in this movie. Uh, he's got so much extra weight that he even has like the sausage fingers. Like even his hands look a little bloated or whatever. But it works for the character. You know, he's kind of this big, hulking, angry guy. You know what I mean? And I think... It kind of adds a certain resonance to the film that, you know, uh, Russell Crowe has a reputation in real life for kind of having a hair trigger temper or being kind of, um, you know, a, a guy that can be difficult to work with or whatever or has anger issues. Uh, I remember back in the day, because I think like a lot of people, you know, I thought Russell Crowe was really cool when he was this kind of up and coming movie star. And then there started to be reports about him, yeah, being difficult to work with, being prone to fits of anger and stuff. I think there was even one story, and this was before the days of, uh, you know, everyone walking around with a cell phone or a smartphone. He was in a hotel room and he had chucked like a bit, you know, like an old landline phone with the hook and the receiver at a uh, ho hotel employee's head. Um, so he always seemed to me like kind of a scary kind of, you know, guy, someone that could, uh, snap at any moment or something like that. And I think that kind of adds a certain something, you know, when he's playing a role like this. And so given the premise of the film, I figured that he and the protagonist of the film, who is a, a young single mother, that they would get in at least some kind of minor car accident that would set everything in motion. But, uh, you know, I pictured, like, her maybe not paying attention and lightly tapping his bumper or something, and then he hunts her down or whatever. But it's actually, he's in front of her, and they're at a stoplight, and he's kind of, because they show him, he's, I think he's on, like, Oxycontin or something. He's always taking pills. Um, he's zoned out at a green light, not moving, and she gets upset with him. And so she's laying on the horn. It's kind of fun. It almost sounds like when I tell it, like when I think about it in my head, it could be like uh, a plot for a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode or something, you know, or a scene from Curb Your Enthusiasm. So after he pulls up next to her and the kid rolls down the window in the back seat, and uh, he's like, don't I even get a courtesy tap? And then there's this little back and forth dialogue about it. I didn't even know what a courtesy tap is. And he, he uh, demonstrates it's when you lightly tap twice on the horn just to give someone a gentle little wake up or nudge or whatever. You know what I mean? And uh, the mother, the single mother of the protagonist is just being like really rude with him. And so he's like, um, and, and he apologizes for being zoned out. And he's like, now if I could just get an apology from you, we can hit reset and everything will be good, you know? But she refuses to do so and she just keeps kind of like telling him off. And then he explodes and he falls her, you know, all over the map and carnage ensues or whatever, you know what I mean? But uh, for a minute, I'm like, hmm, I can kind of see Russell Crowe's uh, point there, you know, maybe if you were polite, but... <laughs>
<laughs> but that doesn't excuse the, the trail of carnage. And, uh, yeah, if I'm gonna go full spoiler, and this isn't even really a big spoiler, this literally happens within the first, like, two or three minutes. The film opens up with him, um, outside someone's house, and you don't see much, but you see him go up to the door and kind of force his way into the house, and you hear the sounds of him, uh, I guess, killing the occupants and setting the house on fire, and I guess it was, uh, they tell you at some point in the movie that it was his ex-wife and her boyfriend. Uh, but yeah, not a bad film. Eh, not great, but not bad. And speaking of movies, I also just finished watching Borat 2, subsequent movie film or whatever it's uh, called. And uh, like so many people, I absolutely loved the original Borat movie. And I loved uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, Ali G uh, television series, etc., and uh, I think his humor is great in a couple of ways. Um, in one sense, you know, or on one level, it's just he's willing to do things or put himself in positions that would make most of us just totally cringe even thinking about it as if our whole being would be screaming out, do not put yourself in that position. And yet he does. And it's almost like you feel kind of embarrassed or worried for him vicariously and, you know, sometimes have to kind of watch out of one eye. So it's great in that way, just as this kind of cringy, I can't believe he's doing that humor. And if you follow Sasha Baron Cohen at all, you're probably aware that he's a, a really left-leaning guy. Um, so we probably, you know, have that in common. Um, and once again, I hope I'm not alienating any listeners I might have who tend to lean more to the right. I've been doing this podcast for a long time, and for most of that time, I, you know, pretty much would avoid politics, except at places where politics and religion would intersect, because then it would bring politics into the wheelhouse of the show. So things like, you know infringement on the separation of church and state, maybe uh, abortion or gay rights uh, issues, you know, where people's um, religious beliefs kind of in, in inform their opinions of those things. But otherwise, I pretty much avoided politics. But we live in such a politically divided time and everyone's so stressed out over politics. Um that it seems like really kind of, it's more difficult now to try to avoid politics. But um, I found the, the new Borat movie to be kind of cathartic as someone who does lean left because it's really stressful when you're constantly listening to talking heads battling back and forth or people on YouTube or whatever trying to score political points and everyone's trying to prove that they're right and this and that and things get really heated. But there's a kind of genius to the simple way Sasha Baron Cohen uses his particular brand of humor to make uh, political points. And often he kind of allows the people um, he's engaging with to kind of hang themselves with their own rope. They kind of make the point for him just by the way, you know, what they reveal about themselves or whatever. And there was also some good kind of visual gags and things like that that kind of, you know, really drove home certain points or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there was one part where 
In this film, spoilers, why not? I guess that's my new thing, just spoiling every uh, movie or TV show I talk about. But in this one, he has, um, the actress is really 24, but supposed to be his teenage daughter. And so like, you know, kind of like a stereotypical young girl, she loves Disney princess movies. So she loves um, this kind of Disney version of Melania Trump. And it shows like, it looks like actual Disney animation. And it talks about the fat prince. And so it looks like Donald Trump, but you know, he's big and fat and he's wearing um, like some kind of regal outfit you would expect to see a prince in or something. And they're at like a ball. And then there's the Melania cartoon figure who looks like uh, an actual Disney princess. And he talks about how he grabs her by the vagine. And so you see the cartoon Donald Trump put his hand under Melania's dress. And then they're like gracefully waltzing around, but he's leading her by a hand under the dress. And it's like, we get it. You know what I mean? Didn't No political bickering or anything like that. Just a cartoon that said a lot. You know what I mean? And then once again, if you're familiar with Sasha Baron Cohen, then you're probably aware that he himself is Jewish, but his character Borat is uh, supposed to be this kind of backwards anti-Semitic character. And he kind of uses um, his, his humor to actually kind of poke fun at uh, anti-Semitism and sometimes to kind of um, lure people into exposing their own anti-Semitism by, you know, <laughs> the way that they might actually agree with his character, uh, Borat or whatever. And it's been so long since I saw the first Borat movie that I can't remember if this was kind of like a carryover. Uh, but he talks about how there's this tradition in Kazakhstan about, well, his kind of uh, mythical comical take on uh, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is an actual place. But um, and how they have this tradition called the running of the Jew, kind of like the running of the bulls. But it's a guy in like, you know, like a giant paper mache Mardi Gras-esque head of a, you know, a ca stereotypical caricature of a Jewish person. But by the time the end of the movie comes around, he talks about how, you know, things have changed after seeing how kind of crazy people in America are. Uh, now they realize that the worst enemy is the Yankees. So they have the, the running of the Yankees or whatever. And so... <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, it's like one of the last... I think it's like one of the very last parts of the movie. So you see uh, this character, this caricature of uh, a white woman, of this blonde woman. And uh, yeah, so once again, it's like a big, giant paper mache puppet head with someone, you know, wearing it and running. And it looks like just this really, like, angry, crazed white woman with blonde hair, you know, just like a, a crazed uh, take on like an, an angry Karen, a stereotypical uh, blonde pro-Trump white woman or something. And she has like, and she's doing the okay sign. So it's like this big, angry, disturbing uh, white lady with uh, an okay symbol, you know, a giant okay hand. And so 
If you're not familiar, there's all sorts of memes on the right that people read as being anti-Semitic or racist. Uh, and if you call people out for it, they'll say, no, it's not really anti-Semitic or racist. We're just trolling. We're trying to trigger people or whatever. And one of those is the OK uh, hand sign, which has been around forever. You know what I mean? And I'm not sure what the origin of the modern kind of troll use of it is, but I think I heard at least one possible explanation that maybe it's supposed to symbolize the triple K as in KKK. And so usually if someone just meant it as an okay, they'd kind of raise up their hand. But uh, to be kind of a little bit more discreet or secretive or whatever, but at the same time they want people to notice it, they'll uh, hold their hand down by their side and they'll kind of use it in this kind of odd way that we usually don't see people flashing the traditional OK symbol. So you can kind of tell if someone's doing it in a way that's meant to be a kind of white supremacist dog whistle, or even if they claim not to be racist, uh, you know, maybe if they're doing it according to them jokingly to own or trigger the libs, you know what I mean? They'll have the OK symbol down by their side. And so disturbingly, there's been uh, things like pictures of um, young military guys taking a group photo or even police taking a group photo. And you can see a number of them holding the OK symbol down by their sides in that kind of weird, unusual way. So, yeah, so I'm trying to remember if the thing was wearing a MAGA hat, too. I think it was. So, like, this big, angry white Karen head with, I think, a MAGA hat, and it's doing that OK symbol, and people are, like, running from it. And I think there was a male kind of counterpart, like a, a weird male MAGA guy, too. And then there's, like, a figure wearing a big, giant, like, uh like a doctor's head wearing like, you know, dressed like the person's dressed like a doctor and they're carrying a giant kind of novelty, you know, vaccine syringe. <laughs> and then the two like mega uh, puppet people or whatever are jumping up on, up and down on top of the vaccine needle. And once again, it's just like a great visual gag. It's kind of simple. Uh, it's kind of simple in a way, but genius in a way too. And so it's kind of like no debating, no fighting back and forth. You just see the visual gag and you get it. You're like, yep, kind of sums it up. And so, like I said, Sasha Baron Cohen leans left. And for the most part, he's kind of uh, taking the piss, you know, <laughs> in regard to, uh, you know, making fun of kind of like uh, right-leaning people, mega types or whatever. But there is a controversial part where um, the family of a Holocaust survivor was actually mad at him. And I want to see if I can, uh, I, I know I saw this on Wikipedia when I was just trying to, you know, read the, the article on the movie. Yeah, so I just brought it up on my iPad. Uh, the film's creators were sued for fraud after including an interview with Holocaust survivor Judith Dim Evans. Evans died before the film's release, but her heirs brought the lawsuit alleging that she did not consent to the commercial use of her likeness. And this part of the movie, oh my god, it is really wild, you know, talking about cringe humor where you have to kind of peek through, you know, your fingers using one eye because you can't believe what you're seeing. Um, 
I think uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen claims that he actually broke character out of respect for this woman and let her know what was going on. Just obviously, he's actually he's Jewish, obviously not anti-Semitic. Um, but in keeping with the character of Borat, so he goes in a synagogue dressed as like a medieval stereotype of a you know, a negative stereotype of a Jewish person. So he goes in a synagogue and he's wearing like a two foot long uh, nose, like a little hat with horns, bat wings on his back. And he's wearing, and he's uh, carrying a bag full of money. Unbelievable. And so it's pretty cool, actually, how the woman receives him. And once again, I don't know if he broke character. If he did, when did he break? I mean, he seems like a pretty stand-up guy. And obviously, as insane and over-the-top as his movies and his characters are and his humor is, uh, there's a genuine left-leaning guy underneath. So I take his word for it that he broke character. Um, I would imagine just on some human level, if, you know, he's a Jewish person who's talking to an elderly Holocaust survivor, he'd want to let her in on the joke or whatever at some point. But, uh, so I don't know if this part was kind of like rehearsed or if he broke character afterwards, but she's just really calm and welcome, welcoming him. And even though he's dressed like this grotesque, offensive stereotype, she really welcomes him in this this very kind and gentle and loving way and tries to gently explain to him why, you know, why you shouldn't hate the Jews and why we should get along or, or something like that. She even hugs him. So it's kind of, you know, touching in that way. But yeah, he's just, he's hunched over. He's carrying a bag full of money. He's got a fake nose, horns, and like I said, like leathery a pair of bat wings on his back. So it's like, oh my God, what am I watching? Yeah, and there was something else involving uh, the Holocaust in the movie. So his character Borat is supposed to be so rabidly anti-Semitic, you know, that at some point, I think people introduce uh, Borat to the uh, to the conspiracy theory that there, there wasn't a Holocaust. You know, so basically... Uh, Holocaust denialism, you know, in my book, pretty much as low as you can go. And, uh, and so Barrett, uh, and so Borat, Barrett, isn't that, uh, Amy Coney Barrett? I don't know, maybe uh, unintentional, uh, Freudian slip. But anyway, so Borat finds out through these conspiracy theories or whatever that supposedly the Holocaust never happened. And he's so rabidly anti-Semitic that he really takes this as a blow. You know, he's really, really struck by this news. And he's kind of dejected because uh, he, and once again, this is his kind of satirical take, almost a, a mythical take on uh, the Kazakhstan of his character Borat, not the real Kazakhstan. But supposedly the biggest point of pride for Ka Kazakhstan is the Holocaust or something like that. So he's all dejected. And I think when he's in that synagogue, um, maybe I'm making this up. I can't remember how it went. <laughs> not, inten not intentionally trying to be deceptive. I'm just trying to piece together the movie by memory. But I think someone, maybe the lady in the synagogue, tells him that, no, the Holocaust really happened. And then he's kind of overjoyed. He's like, it did. You know what I mean? But yeah, really uh, warped. And that, it kind of reminded me of something that I've mentioned on the show before that I found odd over the years. And I guess I should preface this by saying that in fairness, I guess technically you could be someone 
who buys into the conspiracy theory that there never was a Holocaust without necessarily being an anti-Semite yourself. Maybe you're just like a wackadoo who's such a conspiracy theory enthusiast and who questions the mainstream narrative so or mainstream narrative so much that you yeah, you could question something like that without necessarily being an anti-Semite. But I think in general, it's probably safe to say that most Holocaust deniers are uh, are people who either have strong anti-Semitic leanings or who just might be outright anti-Semites or white supremacists or whatever. And I always thought, and, and also I think there's different levels of Holocaust denialism. There's some people who just think that the numbers were drastically inflated. And then there's people who think it didn't happen at all or whatever. But either way, I always found it kind of weird that if you're some anti-Semitic Holocaust denier, um, the thing you probably admire the most about Hitler is the Holocaust or his attempted genocide of the Jews. And so in a weird way, it's like you're trying to whitewash, no pun intended, Hitler's reputation by uh, by downplaying or denying the thing you probably admire about him the most, the Holocaust, you know what I mean? And, and so, yeah, it just seems kind of weird. So it seems like th there might be some serious cognitive dissonance or, you know, just intellectual dishonesty there. Uh, yeah, because most of these Holocaust deniers seem to be people who are probably, you know, sympathetic to Hitler. And the reason why they probably admire him in the Nazi party, the reason why they're probably drawn towards him is because of the Holocaust. But then in an attempt to kind of um, salvage or clean up Hitler's reputation, they have to try to deny or downplay what might be in their eyes his kind of crowning achievement. Uh, very strange. And so there was another controversial part in the movie, and I almost feel like, uh, I don't know, that seems kind of redundant or unnecessary, like almost everything Sasha Baron Cohen does is controversial. But there was a part that was being talked about, a part in the film that was really being talked about in the media uh, recently, um, involving Rudy Giuliani. And uh, I just want to stop for a moment to share some kind of thoughts I had regarding Rudy Giuliani recently. And so, as you're probably already aware, Rudy Giuliani is kind of uh, Donald Trump's uh, acting as kind of his personal lawyer, plus almost kind of like a hatchet man digging up dirt. Very strange. And, and this has to do with what, you know, what I've been thinking about. So... I think over the years, my opinion of Rudy Giuliani is kind of waffled. You know what I mean? Um, he used to enjoy a, a very kind of prestigious reputation. Uh, I think he came up through the district attorney's office. And one thing I'd always, I always found funny, I can remember when I was like in my 20s watching some A&E documentary on Rudy Giuliani. And it was talking about how... Um, how he had success busting like motorcycle gangs and this kind of thing. And they showed a picture of him dressed in like his undercover gear. And it was weird because I think he was dressed like a biker, like with maybe like a vest and a leather jacket. But then there's still that Rudy Giuliani head with the horseshoe patent baldness and the, the buck teeth. It's like just try to buy, you know, Rudy Giuliani as an undercover, you know, uh, going undercover as a biker or whatever. Very strange. But anyway... 
Um, you know, he became mayor and he was known for really cleaning up New York, making like Times Square and its red light district, uh, you know, cleaner and safer. And people will kind of, uh, will kind of debate over whether or not his tactics were appropriate. Was he too kind of, um, you know, draconian in his law, law enforcement approach or whatever. But he did enjoy a reputation as being the guy who really cleaned up uh, New York. And then, um, of course, there was 9-11. And after 9-11, he was known as America's mayor, you know, because he came out in, in the wake of 9-11 and uh, gave like a kind of inspirational speech and kind of tried to pull everyone together or whatever, something like that, you know. Um and so whatever you think of Rudy Giuliani, I mean, you can't deny that he did enjoy a very kind of good reputation. And so I wondered, like, why would this guy who has such a good reputation um, spend his twilight years working as one of Donald Trump's goons? And let's say even if you're listening to this and you're pro-Trump, maybe you're right-leaning, uh, I don't think that's too unfair to kind of describe him that way. Maybe goons, you know, goon is not a uh, not a flattering term or, you know, it's it's a biased term to use against someone. But if you think about it, he's not just acting as Donald Trump's lawyer. He is, uh, I think we pretty much known that he's gone overseas to try to dig up dirt on uh, and Biden. I mean, I've said a bunch of times on this show how, I forget how South Park phrased it years ago, but they were talking about whatever the uh, presidential, you know, whoever the front runners or the candidates in the presidential race at the time were, that it was like choosing between a turd sandwich and whatever. But, you know, basically people were being stuck with trying to make a choice between two horrible um, offerings or whatever, or candidates. And I think that's the same now. Uh, like I, I've said a lot, a lot of times in the past that I used to be very fond of Joe Biden because I was very moved by his personal story. And he seemed like a really kind of folksy, just down the earth, uh, relatable kind of guy. Because, yeah, when he was young, because I think he was a, he's either the youngest or one of the youngest people to ever enter the Senate. You know, uh, he's been there, was it, like 47 years or whatever. But there's a tragic car accident in which his wife at the time, and I think a daughter, died. And I think one of his sons, his son was severely injured. So he was kind of nursing a son back to health, had lost a wife and daughter. And he was doing that Well, you know being a young senator or whatever. Um, and so I used to admire him in that sense. I used to have a certain affection for him in that sense. But as I've said before, even if it sounds cold, that only takes you so far. And uh, when you look at his record, and I don't know if this is a kind of Overton window kind of thing, but when you look like back in the day, um, when you look at the records of people, uh, of de uh, certain Democrats, um, their policies seem like Republican policies in comparison to, you know, what we think of as, as uh, you know, being the typical in keeping with the typical worldview or political ideology of a modern Democrat. And he was really tough on crime. And so was Hillary Clinton. And they had kind of policies uh, that 
um, in retrospect, seem, well, for lack of a better word, almost like downright racist or really, you know, racially biased. There's the whole like super predator thing that uh, people bring up regarding Hillary Clinton, etc. And then just like even when a lot of people talk about how they think Joe Biden is senile, but I think in fairness to him, and I think there, I think both uh, Trump and Biden are suffering a certain degree of cognitive decline. You know what I mean? Um, but in fairness to Biden, and I don't, this is kind of like a backhanded compliment, a compliment, but his, uh, he's been gaff prone and, uh, he's had a, a, a kind of propensity for putting his own foot in his mouth. Uh, is as far back as you, as you go, you know what I mean? And I remember when, uh, I, I voted for Barack Obama twice. And I remember the first time around, uh, when he was looking for a running mate and, uh, and Joe Biden was in the news saying of Barack Obama, speaking of backhanded compliments, that he's very neat and clean. And there was something about the way he couched it that people read that he was kind of saying that, oh, isn't it surprising he's so neat and clean for a black guy? You know, there was something weird like that. So Biden's gaffes and his, his weird foot and mouth um, moments, those span back to his youth or at least his middle age. You know what I mean? Now I'm wondering why I was talking about Biden. And now I just remembered because I was talking about uh, Giuliani trying to dig up foreign dirt on Biden. And so I don't know what the truth is regarding regarding Biden and his son Hunter. I don't, I mean, something smells fishy, you know, something's off there. You have the son of a powerful politician who um, appears to be getting, you know, being paid obscene amounts of money on a weekly or monthly basis or whatever it was for doing a job that, as far as we know, he wasn't really qualified for. Uh, how involved Joe Biden was, I would imagine that he must be somewhat involved or he must have been somewhat involved in order for Hunter to end up in a position like that. I mean, I don't know what the deal was. I already mentioned that I planned on voting for Biden not because I think he's a great candidate. Cause, uh, and by the way, I don't know if it's appropriate to say or not, but uh, or divulge, but I already voted. I voted like two weeks ago uh, by mail-in ballot. And I went with Biden. Not because I think Biden's a good choice. If he wins, we're going to probably have to spend the next four years, you know, or maybe we'll find out sooner uh, one way or another, just what kind of president he's going to make and what new problems we might have to, you know, deal with. Um, but I think Trump is so bad for the country that I probably would literally vote for a turd sandwich over Trump. You know what I mean? And you guys know my kind of my more personal reasons for disliking Trump, um, having to do with his character, uh, you know, things he said about... You can second guess whether or not he said certain things about the military. You know what I mean? Some of that, it's hard to suss out a lot of its hearsay, but we do know he's on video saying that of John McCain, whatever you thought of John McCain, he could be really cantankerous and combative, but the guy's experience in, in Vietnam as a prisoner of war, I mean, come on, man. I mean, how can you not be moved by that? How can you not respect him? The guy uh, could have got out early 
because of his connections. His father was a high-ranking naval officer, but he didn't want to leave his fellow prisoners of war behind. So instead of, you know, allowing his name to get him out early, he stayed behind so he could be with his brothers, his uh, brother-in-arms or brothers-in-arm, whatever, you whatever. Brothers-in-arms, I think. Uh, that's probably it. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So how can you not respect John McCain's story? So Donald Trump saying that I like people who weren't captured when he has a stack of deferments. I'm trying not to swear in the show, but I'm like, fuck you. Fuck you, Trump. Triple fuck you. And then um, the birtherism thing. Uh, I mean, I think that's... It. Like I said, I think the birtherism movement was xenophobic at best, if not outright racist. And I've talked before about how... Let's, let's say for the sake of argument that Barack Obama uh, wasn't born on American soil. Uh, as far as we know... I mean, what, what, like I said, was it the Republican mayor or governor or whatever uh, came out and said, I have his, you know, we have his birth certificate. Mo then they moved the goalposts. Oh, no, that's his short form. We want the long form birth certificate. So I believe he was born in Hawaii. Even if he wasn't, he was born to a mother who was an American citizen. And there's some, you know, room for debate, room for debate constitutionally on whether or not you, you know, the phrase native or natural born citizen means that you have to be born on American soil. But uh, there are constitutional scholars who said that Ted Cruz, who we know was born in Calgary, uh, that uh, he probably wouldn't have, you know, he probably would have a clear path to the presidency because uh, remember he ran last time before Trump knocked him out of the running and Trump uh, insulted his wife's looks. Trump implied that his father was a serial killer <laughs> and now he kisses uh, Donald Trump's ass. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I really dislike Donald Trump just on character alone and uh, his handling of um, of this pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. I just think the guy's got to go. You know what I mean? But anyway, back to Rudy Giuliani. So you have Rudy Giuliani, this guy who had this really great reputation as America's mayor, as cleaning up New York. Like I said, there, there's debate over whether he... Uh, had too much, uh, if he was too kind of draconian in his approach to cleaning up New York. But I'm like, why would, why would you spend your twilight years destroying your reputation by being Donald Trump's kind of goon or lackey? You know, I mean, it's just, I don't know what it is. Maybe he's a true believer. Maybe he really believes in Donald Trump. Uh, I know they're kind of like friends, so maybe there really is some kind of strong bond there, like a, a kind of loyalty. Um, or, I mean, does Trump have something on him? I don't know. But anyway, so in this new Borat movie, and this has been all over the place, there's a scene where the girl who plays Borat's daughter, um, and it's funny because at the beginning of the movie, you know, she's supposed to be this kind of feral, dirty Kazakhstani girl, you know, I mean, so she's got like a unibrow and uh, she's got like dirt all over and whatnot. And then they eventually clean her up because I think initially they want to give her as a as a gift to Mike Pence or something like that. And they actually go the CPAP. And it's funny because little bits of this movie got leaked months back. You know what I mean? Uh, 
because they pulled these crazy stunts uh, during the filming where they kind of uh, infiltrated CPAC and things like that. You know, there's a part where uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is wearing a Trump suit and it's really this kind of disturbingly kind of accurate or realistic Trump suit and they end up uh, kicking him out and he's being dragged away while he's in this Trump suit. But, um, so yeah, that's basically how I think the original Borat movie is like that too. Uh, they take these real kind of stunts they pulled and, you know, these moments where they managed to really interview the real politicians and stuff. And then they sew the footage into the narrative of the movie. You know what I mean? And so there's a scene where... Uh, Borat's daughter, who is now all clean, I believe, believe she's actually a Bulgarian actress, and she's really good in the movie, but they clean her all up, kind of give her, like, this, uh, you know, Paris Hilton Disney princess type of thing, where that she's got, like, blonde hair and makeup and everything, and she gets an actual interview with Rudy Giuliani. So Rudy Giuliani doesn't know anything about Borat or that this is like a put on or whatever. He thinks that this hot young uh, reporter or journalist is just there to interview him. And you can tell he's really, he's kind of like taken by her, at, you know, from the get go. And he's kind of being flirty with her and trying to like hold her hands and stuff like that. And so I think the narrative of the movie is that now they're going to try to Borat wants to use his daughter, give his daughter to Rudy Giuliani or use that, the connection, you know, to get to, uh, whatever it is, Trump or Pence, I forget, you know what I mean? But, um, <laughs> oh man, it, it is really wacky. So there's a scene where they kind of move things into the bedroom and the actress playing Borat's daughter is kind of being flirty with Rudy Giuliani, but she says she's trying to adjust his microphone. You know what I mean? But he's kind. she's kind of like touching his waist, like she's trying to get at the wires, but in kind of like a little bit of a flirty way. And so Rudy Giuliani lays back on the bed or lies back. I always get, ever since childhood, I get confused between lie and lay or whatever. Anyway. <laughs> uh, lays back on the bed, I guess. And he sticks his hands down his pants. And so what defenders or apologists are kind of saying is that, oh, he laid back so he could more easily get at the wires and straighten them out. But a lot of people are saying that if you have like a mic or a wire down your pants, why do you have to lay all the way backwards to get it? And maybe, maybe give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe his thinking is, well, if he stretches his body out straight, maybe the it's easier to get at the wires and everything's not bunched up. You know what I mean? But it looks to me like he's, he's lying back in the bed and he's sticking his hands down. And you can see his hand is like, not just by his abdomen or whatever, his hands are way down. You can see his hand through his pants. It's right over... His, his, like, crotch right over his balls or whatever, his little twigs and berries, his twig and berries. And you can see his hand, like, fiddling. And to me, just, I'm not trying to be biased and just because it's Giuliani or right-leaning Trump guy, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go after. If I was to look at it just objectively, it looks like he's leaving his hand down there for a while and his hands are right down at, like, his balls. His He didn't stop at his you know, at his waistline where, you know, the uh, wire might be. And it looks like he's kind of like 
fiddling around, like trying to get things going. Like he's kind of touching himself way down in, in the in the crotch of his pants. You know what I mean? Um, and then and then Sasha Baron Cohen as you know as the Borat character, but through the whole movie, Borat, because he doesn't want to be recognized, is wearing a series of disguises. So he's got like a weird blonde wig on, uh, and he's got like almost like this weird woman's lingerie. And he's pretending that he's bursting into the room because he had, like he doesn't want to sacrifice his daughter to Giuliani. He wants Giuliani to take him sexually instead. So he bursts into a room and he's like, she is only 15. This Take me instead, you know? <laughs> and he's like, my back pussy is very tight. And I know I'm going crazy with the uh, profanity. But anyway... <laughs> And Giuliani's all shook up. He's like, "What are you doing in here?" And so he kind of like rushes out of the uh, out of the hotel room. I'm trying to think. There was something similar in the first movie where I don't think it wasn't as big of a gotcha or as salacious as that. But there was a thing where like doesn't like Borat or a uh, Borat. Barack Obama, but Borat comes on to Ron Paul or something, uh, or he says something or does something to Ron Paul while they're in a hotel room and Ron Paul gets offended and leaves. Um, but yeah, it was totally wacky. And so I watched an interview, I think it was this morning, this morning rather, did I say this? <laughs> this, this guy over here. Um, this morning where Sasha Baron, and it's weird, when he's just being himself, he's a really kind of like sensitive, thoughtful, contemplative kind of guy. And he was saying that he was actually worried for her safety. And so he was hiding in a closet during the shooting of that scene. And he was constantly being alerted via text or whatever, what was going on. And so there's, uh, people are saying that, um, he actually made that, the original plan may have been to let that scene go a little further, but because it seemed like Giuliani was actually uh, initiating like a, a sexual encounter, uh, they got worried for her safety, and so he jumped in early and interrupted the flow of uh, of the scene or whatever. Um, so pretty crazy, yeah, pretty crazy. And even if you're a Giuliani supporter. Uh, you have to admit that one thing you can't deny, even if you're sympathetic to Giuliani, is that he has a really kind of shady history with women, uh, a history of affairs, failed marriages, that kind of thing. I think the most recent story was something about he was bragging about uh, about cheating with a uh, a married woman who he bragged about the size of her chest or whatever. Uh, if you don't believe me, look that one up. Uh, she looks a little, um, it's going to sound mean to say this, but looks like she got a little bit of mileage on her. She looks like the type of woman who probably had like way too much plastic surgery, has kind of the fake face. Her boobs are probably fake too, and they're like the size of beach balls. But uh, I get, he was bragging about... Uh, about having an affair with this married woman to friends or something like that. But that being said, I had a lot of rum. We're over an hour in. For those of you who dig the unscripted episodes, I hope you really enjoy that one. For those of you who prefer the scripted ones, uh, hopefully I will get a last-minute Halloween episode out before the uh, before the 31st. I'll try to get a T-Wid replay 
of the um, the first ever Weekend Out Halloween special out as well. Uh, all right, brothers and sisters, until next time.